Hello and welcome to another episode of Coppola Connections, the podcast in which I am shaking every branch of the Coppola family tree to answer the question, are they the greatest film family of all time? Last week we looked at the David O. Russell directed Flirting with Disaster, which starred Patricia Arquette. This week we're looking at The Princess Diaries, directed by Gary Marshall and has a First time appearance uh, by a young Robert Schwartzman. To join me for this conversation, I had the absolute pleasure of being joined by Empire Film Podcast's very own geek queen, Helen O'Hara. We had a lovely chat about this, quite frankly, lovely movie. We talk about the nature of target audiences within films, the state of Hollywood, and Helen's amazing book, Women vs. Hollywood. Helen also joined me for some Nick Cage-filled chat over on Patreon, which you can get right now by heading over to patreon.com forward slash pod, where I asked her the old faithful Nick Cage questions, which are, is she a Nick Cage fan? Which is her favourite Nick Cage movie, and which was the first Nick Cage movie she would have seen? As always, we will be talking about this film in spoilerific detail. So if you haven't seen it, check it out on Disney Plus right now. So with all of that out of the way, it's time to get accustomed to royal living. Straighten that hair, wax those eyebrows as we make some Coppola connections. On this week's episode, we're looking at Gary Marshall's Bohemian to royalty Disney adaptation of Meg Cabot's YA novel, The Princess Diaries. Our link to the Coppola family on this one is Robert Schwartzman. And to join me to take lessons in decorum, elocution, and to get a makeover to see if we are the rightful heirs to the throne of Genovia, is Empire Film Podcast resident geek queen herself, author, journalist, Helen O'Hara. How are you, Helen? Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Yes, this is a this is a heck of a film to be discussing. Who knew it had a couple of connection? Not me, until you pointed it out. <laughs> that is that has been the kind of general consensus on this podcast. <laughs> People going, you sent me over the list, and then I was like, how the hell is Armageddon on that list? And I'm like. Mm. When I was compiling it, I was the exact same as most people going like, so that's, he's a coppola, she's a coppola. It's, it's, yeah. It's, Everyone's a coppola. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, before we get into it, um, obviously you've written a book all about uh, women in Hollywood. Uh, well, women versus hmm. Hollywood, the fall and rise of women in Hollywood, which I've, I, yeah, I've started listening to. And I've got to say, Helen, it's massively refreshing seeing as like a lot of the research I've done for this podcast is a lot of like new Hollywood era books mm. and like I've I've managed to pick up it's got to be close to 10 books on Francis Ford Coppola yeah. and it's all these books are just kind of like men 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 men, men. <laughs> so what can you yeah, tell us it, about the book well it is uh, yeah it's it's kind of a past present and future is the aim of women in film so why why are we in this situation where you know over 80% of, of uh, films are about male characters, male leading characters. Um, almost 90% most years of directors are men. Uh, well over 90% of composers and cinematographers are men. Like, why? Why have, we, why have we gotten here? And 
what I kind of found looking back is that there were women in the silent era who were doing all of these jobs and heading their own studios and everything else. And they were kind of forced out when the studios took over. So then I kind of tried to look at how women's roles evolved or didn't evolve uh, during the studio era, how the new Hollywood, for example, you know, opened its doors to all of this incredible new talent, these amazing filmmakers, and still didn't open their doors to women at the same time. And there were women who were trying to do exactly what, you know, Coppola and Scorsese and all the rest were doing. And they just did not get the same opportunities. Um, and, and you know, what's happening now, what's changing, what isn't changing, what still needs to be done. So, so the idea is, yeah, I, I mean, I, I slightly bit off more than I could chew, really, because <laughs> it's sort of a 125 years um, of film history. I did, I did try and focus just on Hollywood and not sort of world cinema because I had to give myself some kind of limit. <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, it's it's a lot, and uh, and I think there is a, a case to answer. And I think it's it's fascinating that you're talking about the new Hollywood era because that I think is the great missed opportunity. You know, you had mm-hmm. second wave feminism at the time. You had this kind of new dawn of women speaking up and speaking out, and still mm-hmm. they didn't hire women. And there, there's a fascinating book on it called Liberating Hollywood, for example, that I would really recommend. But even just reading around the edges of even a, you know, Easy Rider's Raging Bulls, mm-hmm. you know, you can tell there were women there who were talented and who were incredibly important, you know, the, the Polly Platts and so on. And they just still didn't get that kind of opportunity that the men, you know, took and ran with and, and gave us such amazing films. I even looked to like, to look at the Coppola family, even the way like mm-hmm. Sophia Coppola was kind of treated. I know there's like, there's an argument to be had that there is with the Coppola family in general, there's this hand of nepotism in everything they do. But like, especially with her films, a lot of the time they yeah. kind of get put down because they embrace like femininity. I know that that's something yeah. that's that um, Marie Antoinette quite a lot. Is this Absolutely. Of, yeah. It's yeah. Purple gum, it's girly and it's like, but, but I don't know. You need, you need that, right? <laughs> You do, but I think that is a really interesting point because if you look at the women who were able to kind of succeed um, uh, during the, the the studio era and then even more recently, you do see a lot of women who are good at telling stories about men. So, you know, Ida Lupino's most famous film is The Hitchhiker, which has no female characters in it. Um, Dorothy Arzner, ha- you know, actually t- told some great stories about women, but was also able to talk about men. Um, Catherine Bigelow, of course, the, you know, the yeah. big example. I would genuinely, I don't think she's a director of women particularly. She's a director yeah. of male stories. She's fascinated with masculinity, and that's what her best films are about. And and, and that's great, you know, in the same way that George Cukor is a, is a great director of women, you know. But the, the point is that... You know, we should have everybody should be able to make films about the the, the subjects that are fascinating yeah. to them, and that includes things like femininity, and it includes, frankly, as we're going to talk about today, you know, films for teenage girls. That should not instantly be something that is laughed off, and I think historically, it really has been. That's been treated as a very kind of low rent, low brow, inherently unimportant thing. And of course, some of them are unimportant, and some of them are silly and frivolous, and all the rest. But they shouldn't they're they're sometimes dismissed as such simply because of the audience they're talking to and if the beatles taught us anything surely it should be that teenage girls are sometimes right about where the talent lies <laughs> well yeah to your point of like um like female directors being amazing to kind of tell these male stories mm. one of my personal favorite sophia coppola films is somewhere which i think like yeah. really taps into what it is to kind of be this 
Hollywood bad boy. And um, she manages to like grapple that and like chew yeah. it over and give us this like really detailed like portrait of somebody who you can only imagine. And there's a whole there's a whole other angle that comes into the Sophia Coppola thing where it's like an aspect of all her stories are privileged white people and stuff sure like that. yeah but then, but then there's that thing of like she at least she's like at least she's got some like uh i don't know she's got the like she's she's lived the life to be able to go like well yeah i was dragged around hotels by my dad i went to italy for premieres and stuff mm. like that so my, and my, my life still isn't perfect and you know yeah, and exactly. yeah my, and my, that's my, what and that's where you get into the sort of the universal things of the emotions and the the feelings of alienation, the feelings of loneliness and, and you know, the stuff in her films that translates to everybody and, and not just, as you say, absolutely rich white girls <laughs> and, and people in general. Yeah. So when did you first become aware of the Coppola family? And I kind of say like as yeah, the family is like mm. that they were this thing. I don't know. I mean, I think I was trying to think of the first films of from the list that I would have seen, and it would have been stuff like Peggy Sue got married. I think pretty early on with Nicolas Cage, and and I was aware of Moonstruck, but I think my mom didn't let me see it for a while. Um, so it would have been in the kind of the nineties era that I kind of became aware of them. And sorry, I'm just going to let that car go past because it's incredibly loud. <laughs> So yeah, so it would have been in the 90s that I kind of became aware of them. I mean, I think possibly the first one I actually saw might have been Benny in June, which mm -hmm. was quite big for me as a, as a kid. Um, but I wouldn't have at all associated that with the Coppola's. As far as I, I was concerned initially, I had heard of Francis Ford Coppola. I was aware of The Godfather, but I didn't know any more than that. And it took me a long time to see that. That was only really when I started seriously get, trying to educate myself about film as a subject that I started sitting down and going, right, I need to watch The Godfather's. That kind of thing. As somebody who's taken on this journey, it's like a uh, a big a big sore spot that I've I've never watched the Godfather, or at least like I I watched it way too young. So like mm. th th this podcast is very much a journey of me getting to watch some of those films where people are going, "You're an idiot. You've never watched the Godfather <laughs> trilogy." So, so yeah. Um, so um, as a as a film journalist, have you ever met a Coppola? Um, I've met a cage. I've met Nicholas Cage. Uh, he came in and did a web chat for us. Um, he was absolutely exactly as you wish that Nicholas Cage would be. I have to say we we almost owe him an apology because our web chats tended to be fairly low key and we obviously advertised them online so people would would turn up. These were very low tech. Um, you know, kids, if you're listening, we were we were literally having text questions come in from readers and I was typing their answers. <laughs> so there's a lot of pictures of me sitting next to incredibly famous people and apparently paying them no attention as I stare at my computer screen, right? Um, but, uh, but we kind of weren't prepared for the sheer hysteria that came with getting Nicolas Cage to come in and do this because, you know, previously we'd maybe had four or five, uh, you know, um, autograph seekers turn up looking for autographs. When he came in, there must have been 30 or 40 and we were mobbed and it was genuinely difficult to get him into the building. And I felt absolutely terrible for him because, it, it, you know, that isn't pleasant. And we didn't, ha and also our security in the building, they tried to help, but they weren't prepared for this either. So uh, so I just felt really bad that we hadn't anticipated that, but we had never had a reaction like it. And um, and to his credit, you know, I think he took a couple of minutes out, you know, 
took himself off to the loo, maybe got a cup of tea, and then was completely delightful, really, really lovely man. Um a bit eccentric, as you would expect, of Nicolas Cage. And indeed, oh. as you would want of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, answered all the questions to his, the best of his ability. Um, told us about going to a haunted forest and, and getting a, a large piece of wood, which he turned into a wizard's staff. Um, he was living in Glastonbury at the time. I don't know if he still is. But, um, I mean, he was, yeah, delightful. Genuinely delightful. That seems to be the like general consensus. That, like, <laughs> anyone I've ever spoken to who's worked with him and stuff like that just says like he's this uh consummate professional like when it comes yeah. to like films even like the low budget ones he's doing he'll come not only knowing the script back to front he'll have all these like character notes and be like yeah. i think this guy like kind of comes from there and it's like you know like this this is a free this is a three million dollar movie nick and he's like well i, I like to act so i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna turn up and i gotta act to the best of my ability yeah um, Amazing. So let's talk about the Princess Diaries. The um, Princess Diaries. There she is right there. That's me at Thermopolis. Glamour, romance, fame. Mia Thermopolis had it all, but only in her dreams. As always, this is as good as it's gonna get. Her real life was completely ordinary. You're way tense. But now, something's about to happen. Your grandmother called. This is the first time she's ever contacted us, what you want. That will change everything. I am queen of Genovia. Whoa, whoa. And you are princess. Shut up. Just in case, I'm not enough of a freak already. <laughs> What's that, a tiara? I can teach you to walk, talk, sit, stand like a princess. Woo! Let the work begin. We don't schlump like this. It's a question of taste. Princesses never cross their legs in public. Tuck one ankle behind the other. A matter of grace. Oh, oh. What kind of dancing do you do? Where is the beautiful girl? My granddaughter, Amelia. And a chance. Attack. To make all her dreams come true. Hey. Only Paula. Gonna take this and give you much better. Walt Disney Pictures presents Anne Hathaway and Academy Award winner Julie Andrews. Do you think she can do it? I have no doubt. Princess Diaries. I would like to propose a toast. What is your relationship to this film and what made you pick it for the podcast? Well, I just thought it'd be a non-conventional pick. Um, it's and, and I genuinely hadn't wasn't aware of the couple of connection to this at all. I had not put together the two Schwartzmans as being brothers. I hadn't hadn't spotted it. Well done me. Um, but uh but yeah, this is a film. I was probably a little bit older than the target audience when this came out. Um, but my little sister was a huge fan of the books, so it was. I was very aware of this being a being a film that I should care about. And I think I was kind of immediately aware that Anne Hathaway was going to be a thing. Um, so I, so I kind of saw it for her. Um, I love the fact that in the later books, this film 
canonically exists in the books. I don't know oh, if you mix. know this. Yeah, yeah so yeah. and they and they they relentlessly make fun of it because you know they're like, what? She doesn't end up with what? What do you call this character, Mike? You know, they're because yeah. he does. She does in the books, and and she's appalled that in the films, she ends up with Chris Pine's character instead. Spoiler for the Princess Diaries <laughs> two royal engagement. Um, but yeah, it's just very charming. It is a genuinely star-making performance from Anne Hathaway. You can see that quality in her. Um, it's it's Julie Andrews on screen, and that is completely delightful in itself uh so i was i was you know happy for it yeah i'm I'm, i have a very soft spot for these kind of teen movies and and not just do i as i kind of said earlier i i do think that they get a bad rap and they are dismissed too easily but i also genuinely enjoy quite a lot of them obviously the mean girls and the clueless and the ones that it's cool to like but even something like she's all that the amanda Bynes one i think she's an incredibly likable personable star and didn't get any credit but for any of those movies because she was a you know teenage girl talking to other teenage girls. So so yeah, I, I like it. It's not the cleverest or the most original premise ever, but it's fun. Well, I'm definitely like what a lot of people say. I'm not the target market for this film. <laughs> the 30-year-old uh, man. Like, But I watched it for the first time last night and I like had a bit of like, like a... a just, do you know what I mean? A bit of a, a rough day and was like, ah, oh. mm. you know perfect. I've got that to, to watch like for the podcast. Stuck it on. And I was like, I was absolutely charmed. And especially mm. like picking up on people who like, um, like Sandra O oh for me. Like, yeah. In this film is so absolutely funny. phenomenal. Like every scene and uh, who's the, I'm trying to think of the, uh, come the guy who does the makeovers, the dad from 10 Things I Hate The dad about from you. 10 Things I Hate About You, which is a great film. Yeah. Yeah. He comes in and like, it just feels like everybody's like, ev- all of these kind of small bit part players are really just like, really having so much fun with it. So before, yeah, yeah before we get into like kind of some of the key scenes in this, could you give us a brief synopsis of what this film is about, Helen? Yeah, so um, Anne Hathaway plays Mia, who is an average teenager living in San Francisco. Well, a slightly uh, unusual teenager living in San Francisco. (laughs) She lives with her very artistic mum, who's played by Caroline Goodall. Um, She's kind of a bohemian. She doesn't conform. She and her best friend, Lily Moscovich, played by Heather Matazaro, who is brilliant, um, Mm you know, spend their days cooking up wild schemes. And uh, and all is right in her life, except that she's just saving up to buy a car and and hopefully have Heather's brother, Mike, who's played by Robert Schwartzman, um, work on that car for her and get it, get it up and running by her birthday. And then, and then she finds out that her long deceased father was the heir to the throne of Genovia, a roughly European, I guess, country where everyone <laughs> speaks English and Julie Andrews is the Dowager Queen. And she now has to take up the throne. So she has to get a makeover and she has to learn how to be a princess and learn the etiquette and also figure out being a teenager at high school and navigating the temptations and challenges that come with the popular kids suddenly wanting to be your best friends. So... So yeah, that's that's the question. It's um, will she take the throne? Will she succeed in learning everything she needs to know? But also, will she be able to kind of hold on to who she is and hold on to her friends and navigate high school at the same time? I think like one of the things that this film does really well is that 
the portrayal of Mia is not that she's like this just uh, like cartoonish geek like she seems to have yeah. a bit a bit more like there's 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 more layers to it like you mentioned like just the car thing and it's like and she kind of there's I don't know her and her, her and her best friend Lily are, are into like like big social issues like yeah at the, and at, which I imagine at the time like from looking back and not really oh. like I don't know like not not things that like do you know what I mean are kind of brought up especially in like a Disney like uh, yeah like teen film and stuff like that and it's um Anne Hathaway for one I mean is is, is phenomenal like she's just so like charming and sweet and almost looks like there's something about her where she looks like she was drawn by like Don Bluth for the American <laughs> like, this yeah. like, really sweet mousy quality to her. yeah but um, she, I, I like that she actually can, you know, has a convincing makeover in this. It's not the sort of, um, uh, you know, take off the glasses and boom, you're done. You know, it, it, they don't go for that easy an answer. They, like her eyebrows genuinely do need plucked in the early scenes. And so that does genuinely immediately improve her face. I mean, look, I'm saying this as somebody who looks, who has her before hair. So, you know, I'm not, <laughs> not getting on my high horse, but like she does have a genuine journey from, a believable kind of slight outcast or certainly kind of awkward kid to beautiful princess character. And and it's not a simple, um, you know, take off your glasses and put on some heels and boom, we're done. And, and I think that's down to her physical acting. I think her, her physical comedy is great and her body language is great. And not just pratfalls, although there are some of those, but just the whole way she carries herself has to change at various points in the film. And I think she's really, really good at that. And, you know, she was still pretty young when this was made. And so I think she deserves a lot of credit for, for talent and for hard work as well as just, you know, a star in the making and having that, that extra quality. Because I think she does a really genuinely good job as Mia. Yeah, and I think what the film really does well in regards to, like, the makeover scene especially is it's not like she's either coming, like, kicking or screaming she's like, mm. she, yeah, she's going to kicking or screaming she's like and at the end of it she's like she kind of feels like she's happy with herself and it yeah it makes for like a really interesting scene when her and lily have like that dispute about it and it's like that thing of being like pulled in those two different directions yeah. of like um she's accusing her of being wanting to be a part of like the in crowd and like and it, it, I don't know. I, I think it's quite pro it's quite a progressive film because it kind of talks those points of like shaming and that thing yeah. of like if if you want to, if there's no harm in wanting to take pride in your appearance, if that is to like if you want to glam yourself up, you glam yourself up. Or exactly. If you want to wear, wear docks and have frizzy hair. That's also that. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I think I think that's one of the reasons it's aged as well as it has because that by no means goes without saying in a lot of teen movies, and I think that a lot of that comes from the novels. I think Meg Cabot is a is a writer with her head screwed on and kind of good values a lot of the time for her readers and and you know good messages uh, to the extent that that you know it's a message movie. Mm -hmm. But I think that is it is really interesting. It is really well done. The fact that Lily's calling her out for moving away in a way that isn't entirely fair because you're right you know she has she she takes these these decisions for good reasons um she's not averse to everything that happens although some of it is obviously less comfortable for her and she says so when it is less comfortable for her mm -hmm. you know and um and equally you know she calls out lily on on some of her 
bad behavior as well. So I think that there's a real give and take to their friendship and a real sense of actual girls working through an actual friendship. Um, and you believe where they are at the beginning and you believe where they are at the end. They, they still feel like people who would hang out and who would talk. Um, but she also begins to feel like a person who would hang out and would have discussions with Julie Andrews, which is, you know, what we all want to get to in life, really. <laughs> so, what, yeah, what do you make of Julie Andrews' performance in this film? I mean, she's flawless. I, 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 cannot partic- I cannot really judge Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews is Julie Andrews. Therefore, if she turns up and is Julie Andrews, I'm on board. You know, so um, playing a European queen, 100%. That makes utter sense to me. I never doubted it for a moment. Um, and, and she's just lovely. You know, she, she has the kind of the sternness and the authority, I suppose, mm-hmm. of someone who is used to being a royal and used to, you know, portraying herself a certain way and behaving a certain way and following very, very well-established rules. Um, but there are hints as well of a person underneath and of a care for her granddaughter and a grief for her son and, you know, and a real human being. And I think that that comes out very well as well in her um, kind of right-hand man who's played by Hector Elizondo, who is, of course, you know, Gary Marshall's, he was always his go-to guy. Yeah. Um, but their relationship is always love is also lovely and funny and kind of does puncture some of the self-importance that the Julie Andrews character might otherwise have had. So, um, so yeah, 100% on board. I, I mean, Julie Andrews, uh, th- there is no criticism that is legitimate really there. <laughs> Come on. Well, I think throughout it, she kind of has that Mary Poppins glint in her eye that like even a little when, she's bit, yeah. of, when she's telling you to like, do this, do that. And you get that like great moment when they um, decide to, that's it. We're done with the the princess training for the day. And we're going to like kind of see San Francisco. And mm. like that whole sequence is great. Like, yeah, seeing, seeing the kind of like uptight queen playing on this kind of looks like really dangerous arcade game (laughs) definitely looks like health and safety would have an issue with like uh but yeah and then and then that kind of culminates in this fantasy bizarre sequence of julie andrews uh knighting a cop and a (laughs) and a a tram and a streetcar driver yeah i i love that bit i mean because she just snaps into royal mode you know from being in grandma mode snaps back into royal mode at a sort of a moment's notice and is very high-handed and over the top and uh yeah it's it's really funny and and silly and nice well even like that you can kind of like look at it through this prism of like it it has like i don't know it almost like maybe i'm putting way too much into this but like (laughs) it plays to the thing of the privilege obviously of royalty because obviously Mm -hmm. her whole thing of knighting those two guys is to essentially get her granddaughter off of a of a charge of like but yeah of of of, oh yeah it's crashing a car no insurance (laughs) no license it's like uh, it's bad stuff it's uh, it's a hundred percent corruption, yeah. But it is <laughs> it 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 comes across less as as corruption per se, and more as her sort of playing the system and almost getting one over on the Yanks, and and so it, it kind of there's a charm to it that I think she gives it that lets you overlook the appalling abuse of authority <laughs> that she also <laughs> engages in. Um, so yeah, shall we talk about Robert Schwartzman in this? Yeah, movie? I think very much kind of you mentioned clueless earlier and this this film to me has shades of like the the clueless story in it. Mm-hmm. he kind of like 
he almost plays like the Paul Rudd like character for like a for a young for a slightly younger generation than maybe I don't know would the, would you say this is aimed at the same like age bracket as Clueless? It's been a while since I've watched. No, yeah, no, I th- I think you're right. I think it's a slightly younger uh, group of teens because even those the characters are fifteen, sixteen. I would say see this as almost a tween film. Mm-hmm. I mean, not far off tween anyway. Thirteen, fourteen for sure because. Um, because it does play a little bit young. And I think that is, I mean, the name alone kind of skews young, you know. Yeah. Um, you, you don't watch that and expect it to be kind of cool or edgy, basically. So, uh, so yeah, I, I don't think anybody would disagree with me on that. So what did you make of, yeah, Robert Schwartzman's small but kind of, I don't know, vital uh, role in this film? Yeah, he's he's... I like him in the sense that he's not the sort of obvious um, love interest. And, and in fairness, he's not the one that Mia has a crush on at the beginning of the film. She's got a crush on this appalling, <laughs> awful blonde guy called Josh, who's played by Eric Von Detten, who I'm sure is a lovely person in real life, but honestly, his character is appalling. Um, and she's kind of overlooked Mike, who clearly has a crush on her and is absolutely smitten and it, smitten before the makeover as well as after. And I think that uh, it's that's nice, you know. So it goes to the fact that he likes her for her and not her for being a princess or her for having, you know, expertly straightened hair and better shoes, you know. So he's very likable in that sense, and and he is he does have a kind of wry sense of humor and a you know a penchant for kind of helping out the underdog and that kind of thing, which which all speaks well to his character. Uh, he but he is a little bit of a not a blank that's not fair but he's he's not the most vital love interest character i think in it, you'll see in a teen movie you know he isn't paul rudd in <laughs> in clueless alas and more men should be but unfortunately we live with what we got um and i you know i think they're, they're, he, they could have gone maybe a little bit further with his character so I, I maybe would have liked a little bit more, but he but he does get you know some stuff to do, and he does have his own interests. He's not just all about the girls, so you know that's all good. But he's yeah, he's just a little bit quiet, and I can see why they decided to go in the in the sequel. So it is um, Chris Pine plays the sort of uh, uh, I don't want to say handsome prince because he's only a duke, but he's kind of the handsome prince in the <laughs> sequel, and they have a much more sparky, spiky relationship where they kind of criticize each other a lot and and call each other out a lot and i think i might have there is a bit of that here but i think mia herself would recognize she needs probably more of it than maybe mike provides yeah i well one of the things i picked up on like robert schwartzman is that the fact that they give him all these like weird character tropes whether it's like mm. he's playing keyboards with like e- covered in m&ms and he's got this like yeah session with with M&Ms or he's like always playing the harmonica, which I would imagine would be that he, cause he can play the harmonica. Like, um, so like his brother has had like dalliances as a musician. He has yeah. a band called Rooney. Yeah. We've like, done quite well over the yeah, years. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and yeah, and I started to notice throughout the film as well, when he was on screen, the score itself, like incorporated harmonica and it was almost like you had like mike's theme and it but then it like I, I, it might be something to do with harmonica i just kept thinking of uh like um was it midnight cowboy do you know what I mean? or like, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like yeah it's a, a bit because it all got a bit dour and he kind of like just gets to sulk about a lot of the film and like says 
like oh what is that yeah he says i consider i've been royally flushed like the yeah the, cru- the crushing blow to mia when like he yeah she's gone off and um kind of tried to tried to have a date with josh and it's all gone terribly it's wrong. all gone horribly wrong yeah and and he just it, like he is just a bit dour i think and and you know you know i know it was the style but his haircut doesn't help him he's a very handsome man but like you know <laughs> it is he doesn't look his best i think it's fair to say in the princess diaries because that haircut is just unforgiving and <laughs> and, and I, I i so I think it is a pity. I think they could have given him just a little bit more spark. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Because, you know, this is something I I talk about in my book, but, you know, women stuck in the love interest role, like the love interest role is often pretty rubbish. You know, you don't get a lot to do. You get these films where they try to convince us that like Jessica Biel is unattractive to men because she's clumsy because they can't think of any other trait to give her that you know men will still fancy her which I, I kind of feel like you could get away with quite a lot if you were Jessica Biel but anyway um and uh, it's a little bit the same here you know they've made him I think they have given him things to do they have given him interests and hobbies and little quirks as you say but still, I think he needs a bit more spark and a bit more liveliness about him to really justify being next to Mia, who is just such a charismatic character, you know? So it doesn't always work quite as well as you want because, as you say, he's a bit sulky. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like uh, if this film was like made today, you'd almost get a version mm-hmm. of it where like the kind of love story, as it were, is that kind of what were one uh, a love story of self accepting mm. self which this this does which this is yeah, well. yeah 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 and that kind of uh that to and fro of a friendship almost like in a kind of mm. how uh so like book smart plays it where it's kind of oh like yeah the, the love story you're rooting for is for those two it's between the it's, yeah absolutely whereas in this it kind of feels like yeah like the the traditional boy girl love story all feels a bit second fiddle and some are like the mm. least interesting parts of the film and it's the the moments when yeah like the stuff of her mum and stuff like that is like far more interesting and yeah. and that and the stuff with like trying to deal with becoming royal just just that just that kind of I, I, but then again this may be speaking from from the perspective of uh, of a thirty year old man, as a, as opposed to a, no, but I I um, think I think you're right. I think I think look, I think the love story is there for a reason because I think also if you have a story called The Princess Diaries, I think you do probably want a love story prince, in there. Like yeah. I feel like it's part of the it's part of the package a little bit. So I I do get why they had a love story in there, but I also agree. I think the other elements of the story are more successful, generally speaking. And, um, and and I wonder if part of that is the fact that he's just not that charismatic a character. And, you know, I imagine if you had sort of like Zac Efron at his sparkiest in that role, you know, or Chris Pine again, obviously, as in the sequel, where, where a lot of it doesn't work, but I think the, the love scenes really do. Or, you know, just just one of those guys that she's acted against since, you know, mm-hmm. a, a Jake Gyllenhaal or whoever, who has just a bit more going on. Because um, Robert Schwartzman has a lot going on in his own life and he has, you know, mm-hmm. loads of interest outside, but it doesn't all come across here. And he does seem a bit just serious and subdued in a way that Mia isn't. And And so that's, I think, what's frustrating about their relationship. You want somebody a bit sparkier, and a bit livelier and they could be they can still be weird because it would kind of fit with Lily and Mia herself 
but you, you just want him to have a little bit less, um, yes, somberness. Is that a word? Somberness. <laughs> I, 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 I say far worse. Well, like, <laughs> I, I make up far, far worse things. So don't, don't worry, Helen. I, I'm always, I'm always making mistakes. Um, so yeah, I, I guess, I guess we should briefly mention the fact that we have a, a performance in this film from Mandy Moore as well. Again, we who do. plays like the, 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 the villainous, like it girl at the school mm. but like again even that even that plot line i i totally see why it's in here and mm. it's kind of it's not really a teen film without it but then like that almost like falls to the they're 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 just as foils to kind of yeah really just like make mia feel bad like when i don't know yeah when she slips up and stuff like that and it's uh, and and it's an I guess would, was Mandy Moore a Disney kid like because they give her a chance to have a song and dance moment don't they to uh... yeah they do yeah I mean she became a Disney princess obviously entangled um, so she she gets her moment later on like she's such a likable actress Mandy Moore in so many things but she was quite good at playing the bad guy around this time she was also in that um, was it Jesus Camp what was the uh... There was there was a sort of born again Christian movie where she plays the the kind of baddie and she she's a fantastic baddie she's a really really good baddie, um, but uh, but and yeah she she's good here I think I think you probably do need that character I think you need mm-hmm. that person who represents everything that Mia thinks she's not yeah. and and you know you you can almost see Mia kind of saying like if it happened to her if she was a princess she'd be good at it and you can see her thinking. I should be a princess. I'd be good at it. You know, there's there's very much that going on. So I think that that character is kind of important as something for Mia to sort of almost react against and and measure herself by at the same time. And and sort of that's everything she doesn't want to become, and everything I think she's slightly worried of becoming if she really takes up this mantle. So so I think she's quite important. And and yeah, I mean she's she's horrible. She's awful. You hate her in it. You you really do. Um, but that's as it should be. What are some of your favourite moments in this film? Are there, are there scenes that you particularly enjoy? Or um, I do love the makeover. I just find him hilarious. I just think he's wonderful. He's wonderful in Ten Things I Hate About You. He's good in even a small role here. I love the trying to learn to walk like a princess uh, scene. I think that's really funny. Again, just physical comedy um, of Anne Hathaway kind of trying to mimic... Um, uh, Julie Andrews and just not because of course she, she doesn't manage it um, and and I do love the you know the princess moment at the end where she gets her big beautiful ball gown which is aged very well I think mm-hmm. and she gets her kick her kiss that makes her you know kick up her heels so you kind of <laughs> want that happy ending for her she kind of deserves it but but also just her hanging out in her room with fat Louie the cat um, and you know, fretting about her car. I just, I just love her as a teenager. I think she's great. There's some great cat acting in this film. There's Good, a yeah. When she said something to Louis, and he kind of like shot, bumps his head <laughs> up like, uh-huh. like you always get like a, a Tim Allen from the cat, which, <laughs> um, and then and then p- perfectly sits on the letter as well. The but before like mm. she's trying to the run key letter. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. And again, like I keep. I guess it's 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 in the yeah it's it's, it's all over Twitter at the moment, especially mm. at the time we're recording with with Cruella out that it's like this thing of a lot of male journalists or like just people going like who is this film for and like I'm not the target audience for this and it's like 
But one, that stuff shouldn't matter. And it kind of like, when watch it, like, again, as a 30-year-old man, I really, really enjoyed this film. And I'm I, I'm hesitant more so now to watch the sequel because mm. you've kind of, every time you've mentioned it, Helen, it's seen a bit like, it's not as good. It's, like, it's not as good, but it's not bad. And she's still really likeable character. And it has a couple of great moments. There's a weird thing called mattress surfing that comes up in the sequel. That's a lot. Um, and like I say, I do think the love story in the sequel is pretty good. I mean, there's, there's a lot of tropes involved in, as well. The sort of, you know, the, the run for love at the end and all this kind of stuff, and which doesn't make a lot of sense, but, uh, but it, it's, it's not bad. I think they, they kind of spark off each other pretty well. So I don't hate the sequel by any means. I just don't think it's quite as effective as this one. And of course, in the books, they make fun of it. As I say, they they are they're appalled that she ends up with some random dude in the sequel. Um, so so that kind of makes me laugh. Uh, yeah, I, and I do think that like there's just a lot of effective stuff in this. I also think her relationship with Hector Elizondo's character, whose name I have temporarily forgotten, Joe. he is Joe. Yeah, she. I mean, that's that's just really charming. It never comes across as any in any way creepy or problematic because he's just so reserved and so proper. Um, but she can go to him for advice and he will sort of listen and he does mediate between her and her grandmother in a really effective way. And it's just, it's a really nice relationship between two very, very different people that I think speaks well of both of them, you know? And you get those like really sweet, small moments between Mm. Julie Andrews and him. Like, yeah, I love that. Like the moment when they like dance together, when after the dance lesson with Mia, and they kind of dance. And I think it's um, Kathleen Marshall's character, Charlotte, comes in and sees them and kind of like retreats yeah, away. Yeah, just and like, and leave them to it. Yeah. And it, there's there's like this element that like, I don't know, I guess, yeah, it probably taps in more to like an older audience. Like a yeah. Parent, like I think that's there for the parents and the grandparents yeah, watching yeah, this exactly. with the kids. Yeah. But, it, but yeah, it's, well, it is sweet as well. Like it's, you know, these are also two very lonely people. It's almost a remains of the day thing. You know, two people who are too proper to admit to each other that they fancy the arse off each other, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 a really sweet kind of relationship between the two of them as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, lo- I love his line at the end as well where he kind of... He- like a paraphrase here but he says like oh mike's basically stolen my move i was gonna try and sneak <laughs> you out to the garden for a kiss like and it's like yeah the the the, the, the like tender handhold you get as they yeah. walk away and it's I, I just love the fact that it's not like it's not a weird it's not a not yeah it's not a weird thing in the fact that it's like he's the help and she's the queen mm-hmm. it's like this thing of like well, lo- love is love and it's like yeah and you get that like lovely parallel thing of Julie Andrews's character sees herself very much in Mia, which you, yeah, you get that exchange after the speech that Mia mm-hmm. uh, delivers, right, where she kind of ter- turns up all like dishevelled and says like, oh, "I was going to run away, but I've decided to become a princess," which like it moved me. Like I, I, I don't know if it's the the year that we've had, but even by that point, I was like, I'm invested in this. This is, I mean, this is good. Like, this is the thing. I mean, in terms of films not being for certain people, you know, I think there is, I think in some ways men have it quite hard. You know, straight white men have it quite hard in that most films have been made about them, right? Most films in film history, certainly Hollywood films, have been made about and for straight white men. And so they've often never really had to put themselves in the in the shoes of anybody else. And, and it becomes quite difficult then to watch, you know, a Cruella or a or a Princess Diaries and go, but who am I supposed to identify with here? I don't see me, 
immediately. Whereas for pretty much everybody else in the world, we've never seen us as the hero. And we've always had to find things to identify with anyway. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes there, obviously there are exceptions and you can identify with the supporting character. I, I identified hugely with Princess Leia growing up and I always wanted to play her in the playground. <laughs> and I saw myself in like Elliot in E.T. And, you know, he was he was my kind of proxy when I was watching that. And I didn't care that he was a boy and I was a girl because I also wanted E.T. to turn up in my garden as well. So, you know, you you, you find ways in and you find yourself learning to empathize and, and see yourself in whoever was there in a way that a lot of men haven't ever really had to do. So when a, when a film about a woman or women comes out, they're a bit flummoxed because they're like, but I, I have to put effort in now to putting myself in someone else's shoes. Uh, I'm obviously being flippant and incredibly generalizing and hashtag not all men, of course. <laughs> but I do think it is why you get people saying, well, this film isn't for me before giving it a chance you know and and you're not going to like every film for teen girls some of them are very very bad and even the best of them have often very silly moments but at the same time that's also true of Arnold Schwarzenegger films and also true of you know Nicolas Cage films and and we still give those a try so you know I, I think I think there's a lot to be said for just trying to watch films about people other than ourselves and and seeing how it goes. Oh yeah, I've suspended my like disbelief in uh, watching Nicolas Cage run in films. Like <laughs> see, 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 seeing Nicolas Cage run from like past 2010, that the fact that that's been a decision, I'm sure I could watch films and go like, oh, it's a, it's it's about it's about a, a teenage girl who becomes a princess. I'm on board. Sure, that, that could happen. <laughs> so yeah, if if anyone's listening who can't tap into films that they think is not for them. Just watch every Nicolas Cage film and you're kind of uh, you'll be able to suspend all disbelief when watching other films and get into them. Exactly. So, uh, one thing I love to do on this podcast is try and see if there are any connections between the Coppola family and people who were in this or worked on this film. Mm -hmm. Did you manage to find any, Helen? I didn't see any obvious ones, mm -hmm. but I'm probably missing several. Tell me more. Well, there's there's only there's only three I could find without going okay. like, too granular into like the the runner worked on this film as well. <laughs> uh, is Kathleen Marshall is in Ed TV, which ah, of course, yep. Yeah. Uh, John Schwartzman was the DOP. Mm -hmm. This one is really tangential, but okay. Julie Andrews's voice can be heard in Saving Mr. Banks, which has mm -hmm. um. Uh, uh, Jason Robert, Schwartzman, isn't Jason it? Schwartzman, yeah, as as, as the musician, yeah, and then Sean O'Brien, who is, oh, let me find out who that is. Who is Mr. O'Connell, uh, mm -hmm. the, um, the teacher? Yeah, yeah, the teacher who Julie Goodall's character ends yep. up with. Again, that's another great little thing that this film yeah. does as well. It's like it's just like it, they almost get that scene where, like, yeah, Julie Goodall's like. Well, Mama's got to get some too. Like, do you know what I mean? I, 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 I'm out here. I'm out here. Like, she she says, like, there's basically he's not a hip. He's not a San Francisco hipster. So, like, I'm, I've got to take what I can get. Exactly. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, he's in uh, Trapped in Paradise with Nicolas Cage. From ah, 1994. Good knowledge. The less said about that film, the better. Well, okay, yeah, but. <laughs> um, amazing so that is the connections out of the way 
and let's score this film. I like to pair each film with a bottle of wine because the Coppolas are synonymous with their wine. Of course. Um, would you, yeah, what would you say is the, the perfect wine pairing for The Princess Diaries? I'll be honest, I don't drink. So I'm <laughs> I'm absolutely paralyzed in answering this question. It's, it's um, yeah, so, so for me, it'd be obviously some kind of, you know, is there a couple of grape juice that they also produce in the vineyards? If so, that would be great. But honestly, I mean, I think given the people involved, it is probably full fat Coke and M&Ms, some kind of cocktail <laughs> involving both of those. Definitely like, yeah, I'd say if it were a wine, it would just have to be like a sparkly wine. Yeah. The fact that it's got it's got bubbles to it, it's got a, an element of fun and this like, I don't know, have a have a glass and get a bit dizzy or whatever. Yeah, the like. most I think the most sophisticated you could go would be like a summery rosé of some sort, wouldn't it? Like this is yes. not this is not <laughs> not a dark, full bodied red. Like I, exactly. I even I know that much. Yeah. Yeah, we 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 we're, we're saving the dark bodied reds that are gathered some dust for when we get to the get to the the godfather apparently yeah people keep and maybe dracula yeah <laughs> um and how much how much are you paying for this for this uh can of coke is, is this a is this a bog standard cheap can or are we is this a is this a high high price oh i i don't i don't think it would be right for it to be a sort of you know artisanal coke although actually mia's mum probably would go for some art kind of artisanal locally made coke wouldn't she uh, she wouldn't approve of you know large corporations but then that would make mia want coca-cola more <laughs> so it's a really tangled web here um i think it would be just bog standard coke i'll be honest yeah i think that's what you get when you're a teenager um you you, you yeah you go out and just buy some coke and i, I don't mean the drug i mean the drink <laughs> don't do drugs kids yeah, don't do drugs. Uh, even if you are an heir to a throne, with especially in some ways, yeah. Um, so, would you recommend people check this one out if they haven't seen it? Honestly, I would. I think it's really charming. I mean, yes, it is a teen movie about a girl who finds out she's a princess. So, you know, go in with your eyes open to that fact. But as long as you're willing to go along with that, I think it's a, as I say, a very good example of star power you know, becoming a parent at a fairly early stage in someone's career. Not quite her first film, but pretty close. Um, I think it's got Julie Andrews in, which is worth the price of admission alone. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's more charming than it had to be, which, yeah. you know, deserves some love. Um, so I, I know it won't be everyone's cup of tea, but I think it should at least be something, a tea that everybody, you know, gives a try. Yeah, and it's, I think now, especially it's on Disney+, Plus, like, there's exactly you're not you're not parting with any money to watch it and i think like it's one of the things that i'm glad with this podcast is i possibly never would have watched this film like and and i'm i'm, I'm glad i did because i had I had a lot of fun with it and it's just taking it for what it is yeah and going like there's some great thing and yeah as i mentioned earlier there's you get to see these great character actors whether it is a sandra oh or a larry miller or the the mm. guy who plays like the neighbor like these kind of small characters who are who are having like loads of fun with the film and stuff like that and there are uh, there yeah, there's definitely bits in there for for older generations as well as uh, uh, te teens as well like mm. um, uh, yeah I, I i've got i've got a very young son and i'm sure like as he gets older i'll kind of like when he when he gets to being a teenager i'll kind of like go like hey yep 
yeah, we can we can watch we can watch like I don't know what it'll be at that point. Like I don't know, uh, Transformers thirty seven. Fourteen, yeah, yeah, we can we can watch that. But like, how about we? How about watch this? Quite quite a sweet film. Mm. I'll probably be that will probably be at the point where he absolutely hates me. It'll be like, yeah, if, yeah, probably. If you're not watching a girls' <laughs> film, Dad. You probably um, want to get in there before he's a teenager. But yeah, yeah. it's <laughs> but it's a nice it's a nice little family film. I think absolutely. Perfect. So let's get on to the questions, which uh, I am always glad I am on this end of, (laughs) which is uh, the first one is which couple of member would, which couple of family member would you keep? But in doing so, you get rid of every single one of them. I mean, that is a horrendous question. And I think you know that. Um, (laughs) And, and I, I don't think I have the right answer, but I'm going to give you the answer that the heart wants what it wants, right? So while I enormously admire Francis Ford and Sophia, for example, not not exclusive to them, but but principally them, I would keep Nicolas Cage. I'm sorry, but I would. I would keep The Rock. I would keep Con Air. I would keep Moonstruck. Uh, You know, even some of his crazy recent films, that's... That's the kind of energy I want. So I would, yeah, even though that means I get Ghost Rider 2 instead of The Godfather, I realize <laughs> I realize that's problematic for any kind of self-respecting film journalist to say, but I just, I love that he's as unpredictable as he is. Um, I love that running joke, if you remember Community, had mm-hmm. the one question that Abed could never answer, Nicolas Cage, good or bad? And he <laughs> couldn't figure it out. It just, it's, and it's, I don't know the answer myself. I just love that it's a question. So yeah, I think it would be Nicolas Cage for me. Well, that's that 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 really speaks to that. That speaks to me, Helen. He's the reason I started this podcast in the first place. So yes, I'm I'm so glad we've got a tick in the Nicolas Cage. <laughs> um, so are they the greatest film family of all time? Well, you see, what they have going for them here is sheer numbers, <laughs> you know, because, you know, th- there's a very, very good case for the Barrymores. If you go back to like right through from the silent era, there's a great case for the Houstons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they, you know, pound for pound, they are incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, you know, I love the Wilsons, the the Luke and Owen and um, the other brother whose name I forget. <laughs> good family but um there are there are great great filmmaking families the red graves oh my god um but just for sheer numbers and the fact that you're going all the way from the godfather to fantastic mr fox via you know lost in translation i, I don't know who else can compete with that kind of range um because yeah. they've just got the numbers so I mean, I'll say yes. I, I'm, I, you know, if somebody can point out a, a counterexample, I'm here for it. But I can't think of anybody else. Yeah, I, I, I it kind of feels like a bit like I'm cheating with this question because it, it is like that thing of like who would win in a fight, and it's like, <laughs> what? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a one on twenty. You know yeah, I mean? like, this is the problem. Every other family has, if you're lucky, four or five. You know, really, um, for the most part, and and it's it's very hard to think of another family that has this many people actively making often good, not always, but often good films. You know, that's that's a pretty impressive record. I like the kind of interlinking as well of some like mm. other film families into the. Coping this is the family. other problem, yeah. So they just so, like, swallow everybody who threatens yeah. them. 
Yeah, so like Patricia, <laughs> Patricia Arquette at one point, like boom, she's, bring her in. She's on my list where, for that for that window of time she was married to Nick Cage. It's like you you were invited for Christmas at the Coppola uh, family estate. Yeah, you're getting covered on the boom, bunker. Done. <laughs> yeah, so, I um, mean, I'm just trying to think who. I mean, you know, pound for pound, the the Gyllenhaals do quite well, and if you include that Paul Newman is his godfather, you know, there's there's, there's some. There's some other ones you can think of, but like not not in these numbers. Yeah, yeah. that's the problem. And uh, numbers. Yeah. let's let's get on to possibly the most important question on this podcast. Okay. What the hell does Bill Murray say to Scarlett Johansson at the end of Lost in Translation? I I um, I mean I have read, you know, and uh, lip reading analyses and, and so on of, of what he says. But it has never particularly mattered. The wording has never particularly mattered to me because I feel like the the gist of it is, you know, I love you. You'll be okay. You know, don't worry. I I I, I feel like that's that's the message, even if it's not the words. So, um, but yeah, what a film! My God, just two performances, just incredible. Yeah, yeah. That's. I kind of feel like now I'm asking that question. It's only dawned on me. Like now, I'm like. Yeah, what like twelve episodes in recording? Going, um, maybe that's the last film on the podcast. Like, hey, yeah, <laughs> it'd be a good uh, note to finish on. I mean, what what a movie! <laughs> but then again, I've I've probably got all the Nicolas Cage films that are that are slated to catch up on as well. Um, Absolutely. So, so yeah, uh, where can people keep up to date with everything you're doing, Helen? Whether it's the Empire podcast or general stuff general stuff well yeah so i'm on twitter at helen l o'hara um i am as you say on the empire podcast every week and we also have a spoiler special channel a particular sort of subscriber channel which is for all the big movies and um sort of in-depth incredibly uh nerdy often <laughs> discussions <laughs> of all the big stuff um and then as you mentioned my book is out now it's called women versus hollywood the fall and rise of women in film um and that's available now in the uk i think it comes out in the us in november and it's it's you know it's all the formats it's well it isn't paperback yet but it's on ebook and it's on you know audible and all that kind of stuff so um so yeah check it out if you'd like to learn more about women in hollywood history and hopefully future amazing helen well thank you very much uh well no as i should say as the rightful uh, as as an heir to uh, genovia would say thank you for being here today <laughs> my pleasure your highness thank you for having <laughs> me <laughs> Thank you so much for listening and another massive thank you to Helen O'Hara for coming and talking about The Princess Diaries with me. If you feel like Helen that the Coppolas are the greatest film family of all time, please do get in touch on all the socials, which is Twitter, Instagram, Facebook and Letterboxd, all at Caged In Pod. Or if you have thoughts on an upcoming film that we're going to be mentioning on the podcast, send over a voice note or a written little few lines to cagedinpod at gmail.com.
Patreon.com. If you're not sick and tired of my voice, I'd like to make you well aware of two guest appearances I have this week on other podcasts. The first one was released last Sunday and was on the amazing rambling and ambling podcast where I talk about the 1987 family creature feature Harry and the Hendersons. The other is Conversations at Jack Rabbit Slims where I talked about all things Pulp Fiction, the indie boom of the 90s and of course Francis Ford Coppola and the uh, Hollywood brats of the 1970s. As well as that, I have a bonus episode releasing this Friday, which is one of my personal favourite episodes of the podcast ever, and that's my conversation with film producer and co-founder of SpectreVision, Daniel Noah. So do be sure to check out that one on Friday. As for next week's episode, well, that's a secret. So you'll have to tune in then to hear what film we'll be talking about. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on ACAST, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this on right now. As always, I've been Petrus Patsilovus, your guide through the wonderful world of the Coppola family tree. So remember to keep it Coppola, and I'll catch you next time. One last thing before I let you go is an announcement that I will be changing the day in which the podcast is released. So on the 11th episode of this Coppola Connections journey, the podcast will be moving to a Tuesday and that will be Tuesday the 15th of June. So that will be two weeks time. Uh, You'll be getting a day early. So there's not much to worry about in that regards, but I just thought I'd let you know so it doesn't mess up your week in any way, as if this podcast or or, or, or this is something you're looking forward to. Anyway, guys, I just wanted to make sure I got that out there to the podcast listeners, and I hope it isn't a massive inconvenience to anyone. Please do let me know if it is. Or sign up to the Patreon where you can get it even earlier. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.